0: You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, for the second Sunday of Advent.
1: Here begins the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Isaiah, the prophet, it is written... I send my messenger before you to prepare your way. A herald's voice in the desert, crying, Make ready the way of the Lord, clear him a straight path. Thus it was that John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which led to the forgiveness of sins. All the Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him in great numbers. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. His food was grasshoppers and wild honey. The theme of his preaching was, One more powerful than I is to come after me. I am not fit to stoop and untie his sandal straps. I have baptized you in water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit.
0: happy choice of words, those used to open our gospel today, less formal than the other versions, which state boldly, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or the good news about Jesus Christ. Somehow, here begins has a comfortable fireside touch to it. One can imagine the group of disciples, some already baptized, others not as yet initiated, new Christians, gathered around Mark eagerly awaiting the beginning of the story, anxious to hear the good news. Mark's Gospel is said to date before the year 70 AD, perhaps about 64. But here is the rather homely introduction to it, which appeared in the old versions current before the Second Vatican Council.
1: St. Mark, the disciple and interpreter of St. Peter, saith St. Jerome, according to what he heard from Peter himself, wrote at Rome a brief gospel at the request of the Brethren, about ten years after our Lord's ascension, which then Peter had heard, he approved of it, and with his authority published it to the Church to be read.
0: If Mark's gospel was written in 64 AD, it was at the time of the fire of Rome and the persecution of the Christians which followed. The first letter of St. Peter is also given this date, and Peter mentions my son Mark in the letter. And as Butler writes, we can hardly doubt that this was the evangelist. As the date of St. Peter's martyrdom is given as 64 or 67, one wonders, if it were the former, whether Peter actually had heard Mark's gospel, or whether Mark was moved to write his record because his mentor had been taken from him. An interesting speculation. After declaring unequivocally that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Mark plunges straight into a presentation of the forerunner. In Isaiah the prophet, he says, it is written, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way. In fact, the quotation is a mixture of Isaiah and Malachi, the minor prophet. And as Malachi means my messenger, and we're told is probably not a proper name, his book is called The Book of My Messenger. The old version had, Behold, I send my angel, and angels have certainly been messengers. But our version today goes on to speak of a herald's voice, and this refers to the practice of ancient eastern kings, who on visits to their provinces were always preceded by a herald, so that their subjects might prepare the roads for the passage of the royal cortege. So we read, God is preceded by his herald, who prepared a friendly welcome for the Messiah. But let's hear how a modern poet interprets this. Here is Rex Mundi by David Gascoyne.
1: I heard a herald's note announce the coming of a king. He who came, sounding his approach, was a small boy. The household trumpet that he flourished, a tin toy. Then, from a bench beneath the boughs that lately spring had hung again with green across the avenue, I rose to render to the king who came the homage subjects owe. And as I waited, wondered why it was that such a few were standing there with me to see him pass, but understood as soon as he came into sight that this was a monarch no crowds of this world can recognize, to hail him as they should. He drove past in a carriage that was drawn by a white goat, King of the world, to come where all that shall be now is new. Calmly he gazed on our pretentious present that is not. Of morals, glasses, business, war, this child knew nothing. We were pardoned when he smiled. If you hear it in the distance, do not scorn the herald's note.
0: And so to the herald himself, the messenger, the forerunner, the last prophet of the Old Testament, standing on the threshold of the new, John the Baptist, the voice crying in the desert. But where did he come from, this herald of a king with no worldly kingdom? He was not born in the desert. His birthplace has been identified as the city of Judah, mentioned by St Luke. After the Annunciation, Luke relates... Mary set out and went as quickly as she could to a town in the hill country of Judah. That town was Ein Kerem, identified since the Byzantine period as John's hometown. In the Middle Ages, it was known as St John in the Mountains. This is how it's described today in the guidebook.
1: A picturesque village west of Jerusalem... Nestled in a deep valley surrounded by high, steep mountains and adorned with many olive and cypress trees, in its center is a sweet water spring used since time immemorial to water the gardens and vineyards of the village. Now a green and attractive suburb of Jerusalem, the village is inhabited by many artists who enjoy its old domed houses and beautiful scenery.
0: Is it possible that John, while still a child, could have left this idyllic spot to live in the desert, the wilderness? We read in Jeremiah what has been called God's definition of such a place. A land of steppe and ravine, a land of drought and danger, a land through which no one passes and where no human being lives. And a Cistercian monk of our time adds, On the step there is only one sound, The moaning of the wind. This, runs an Arabic proverb, is the desert weeping because it would like to be a meadow. But the desert is not a meadow, and the monk goes on to describe it in case we should have any poetic illusions about it.
1: The desert is both fascinating and terrifying. It's the great lonely void, and human beings instinctively dread being brought face to face with themselves. The hermit is indeed a man apart. The essence of the desert is the absence of man. Pure desert will not even tolerate life. The sea of sand, like the frozen mountain peaks, is nature in its virgin state, as it issued from the Creator's hands. On it still seems to repose the Spirit of God, which hovered over the waters at the beginning of the world. Rich souls are tempted by the virginity of the sight. The desert is pure and purifies. Where man is not is neither sin nor rumour of the business of the world.
0: This, then, was the place the prophet of the Most High, as his father said he would be called, must perforce inhabit. We do not know what age John was when he came there. We are only told that the child grew up and his spirit matured, and he lived out in the wilderness until the day he appeared openly to Israel. And though the place was lonely, John, paradoxically, was always in company. As William of St. writes, he, with whom God is, is never less alone than when he is alone. And in the Song of Moses, John would have found comfort.
1: In the wastelands he adopts him, in the howling desert of the wilderness. He protects him, rears him, guards him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle watching its nest, Hovering over its young, he spreads out his wings to hold him. He supports him on his pinions. Yahweh alone is his guide. With him is no alien god.
0: To the south of Jerusalem, we read, one finds two areas of rock and chasm, one running westward, the other eastward towards the Dead Sea where to this day a man could live in almost total solitude, the solitude in which the strong soul called to it reaches maturity most surely. There's a place which seems to claim John's presence. It's the Franciscan convent of the Desert of St. John, near the modern village of Ivern Sapir. About an hour's journey to the west of Ain Karim, one reaches a quite pleasant place called St. John's Desert, we read in one guidebook while another tells us.
1: This convent commemorates the way of life of the young John, as reported by Luke. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. Desert here meaning an uninhabited place of wilderness. The compound is small and simple, secluded in the mountains and surrounded by a wall. The grotto in which John is said to have lived is now a humble place of worship, and the church is inspiring in its simplicity. In the small terraced garden is a spring, appropriately called in Arabic, Ein el-Habis, the spring of the hermit.
0: Whether it was here or elsewhere, the desert, the wilderness, was the crucible where John prepared for his mission. We have no details of his life there, apart from what he wore and what he ate. Oddly enough, it's not Luke who usually fills in the colour in his reporting, but Matthew and Mark, who tell us he wore a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt round his waist, and that he lived on locusts and wild honey. But these details would have been enough for those brought up in the Jewish tradition to tell them John was a true ascetic and man of God. In our avid curiosity for the small details of the personal lives of public people, John's diet has always excited interest. Not so much the wild honey, which we're told is fragrant and nourishing. Deposited by the bees in the hollows of rocks or trees, it was the Bedouins' food when they were crossing the desert. No, it's the locusts, or the grasshoppers, if you will. Is there a difference? Naturalists thought there was, until one discovered that the desert locust, which had threatened the Middle East with famine during the Second World War, was of the same species as a large solitary grasshopper. These differed in colour, body structure and usually habits, except after a season of plentiful vegetation when their numbers would increase. In the next dry season they would swarm and migrate, now no longer solitary grasshoppers but desert locusts. In 1945, explorer Ernest Thesiger was invited to collect information on locust movements in the empty quarter of Arabia. He jumped at the opportunity. Not that he cared for locusts, but to cross the empty quarter. Till then, only two Europeans had done so, both Englishmen.
1: The deserts of Arabia cover more than a million square miles, and the southern desert occupies nearly half of the total area. The greater part of it is a wilderness of sand. It's a desert within a desert, so enormous, that, so desolate, that even Arabs call it the Rub al-Khali, or the empty quarter.
0: So writes Thesiger in his classic account, Arabian Sands. Locusts appear in scripture, not only as the food of John the Baptist, but as the eighth plague of the Egyptians in Exodus.
1: Over the land of Egypt, Moses stretched his staff, and Yahweh brought up an east wind over the land, and it blew all that day and night. By morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, The locusts invaded the whole land of Egypt. On the whole territory of Egypt they fell, in numbers so great that such swarms had never been seen before nor would be again. They covered the surface of the soil to the ground was black with them. They devoured all the green stuff in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. No green was left on tree or plant in the fields throughout the land of Egypt."
0: In his Oratorio Israel in Egypt, Handel depicted the plagues using the instruments of the orchestra to produce amazing sound effects, brilliant imitations of nature. In later times, most of the plagues came to be interpreted as intensified forms of natural phenomena that did indeed plague Egypt. As for the locusts, they, we're told, winging in on the east wind, are sometimes swept over Egypt by the hot Sirocco from the Arabian desert. Which seems to correspond to Thessinger's experience, he had seen as he writes plenty of locusts in the Sudan and in the last year of the war in what was then called Abyssinia.
1: I had watched swarms rolling across the horizon like clouds of smoke as they arrived on the Abyssinian uplands from their breeding-places in Arabia. I had watched them going past long-legged in wavering flight, as thick in the air as snowflakes in a storm. I had seen branches broken from trees by the weight of the settled swarms and green fields stripped bare in a few hours. I knew that with favourable wind, locusts can cover enormous distances. But I was amazed when told that swarms can breed in India during the monsoon, move in the autumn to southern Persia or Arabia, breed there again, and then pass on to the Sudan or East Africa. Some of these swarms cover 200 square miles or more.
0: And so much for locusts. It seems that times have not changed much. John would still be able to live on them, as the Bedouins do, dried in the sun and salted to taste. But I think I'll stick to the wild honey.
1: And so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of penance for the remission of sins. All Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins.
0: In this mix of evangelists and versions old and new, what emerges is this movement, this coming together of prophet and people, as the man of God comes down from his wilderness, and the city and countryside goes up to meet him. And there at the river, as the last rites of the old order are performed, the Lord's messenger prepares his way, announcing his coming and declaring his own unworthiness.
1: One more powerful than I is to come after me. I am not fit to stoop and untie his sandal straps. I have baptized you in water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit.